listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guests are Cindy Anderson and John Bai of Linguist and Venom. They're both based in Minneapolis. John is the chair of the firm's public service committee, and Cindy is the pro bono director. We discuss their roles, an innovative community economic development effort to provide legal services to immigrant and minority business owners, and a -a one-of-a-kind training program called Breaking Poverty Barriers to Equal Justice. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Cindy, John, welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thanks so much for joining us today. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, we're really excited to speak with you. Let's jump right in. To start, could each of you introduce yourself, tell us about your background and how you got to Linguist? Well, I'm John By, and I am a litigator here at uh, Lindquist and have been since 1985, hard for me to imagine, and uh, have been co-chair or chair of our public service committee, which oversees pro bono uh, for most of those years, so starting in about 1995. And I'm Cynthia Anderson, or Cindy Anderson, and came here just four and a half years ago, having started my legal career in uh, migrant legal services with Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services, one of two of the largest legal services providers in the state back in the 80s. Uh, And from there, I was in the fortunate position to help start and launch an organization now called the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, which is where I came to be engaged with Pro Bono and their Pro Bono program on the nonprofit side, uh, which generated a number of pro bono projects for large law firms around the state of Minnesota and specifically the metro area. And Lindquist was certainly one of our uh, clients, if you will, in terms of shopping out our pro bono work. Uh, And so came to know the firm well, among other firms. And when the position opened up here for pro bono director, I think the first um, pro bono director program to open in the metro area over many years, perhaps ever after the initial uh, staffing took place back a number of years ago, my predecessor was Candy Goodman. And when she decided to retire, I had the good fortune of, of applying and and being hired here at Linquist. So come to it with many years of nonprofit experience. Thank you. That's a good segue, actually. We'd like to learn more about Linquist in general, the firm and the firm's pro bono program. So could you provide a general overview? Sure. Uh, The firm's roots go back to 1946 when the, the founders actually have two different law firms uh, returned from uh, World War II, uh, and then uh, some good friends from each of those two law firms were, uh, this is literally how they describe it, as being on a beach in Florida on a winter vacation and and drawing out in the sand with a stick how the merger of these two firms would, uh, would work. And uh, so uh, the current incarnation has been around since 1968. We have uh, roughly 150 attorneys, offices in uh, Minneapolis, Denver, and Sioux Falls, uh, and it's a full-service law firm. The program, uh, really, under its current version, uh, really got started in October of 1995, and... uh, Basically, I was called to a meeting of uh, law firms uh, with uh, Esther Lardent, uh, and the MSBA said they were going to give out an award to firms who signed on to the then fairly new pro bono challenge. 
And uh, I was uh, served on another board with some people who were there. They invited me. I brought that back to Lindquist, and we agreed to sign on to this challenge. And as a result, uh, 11 firms in Minneapolis uh, got an award for doing nothing other than signing on to the challenge. But I think it was a brilliant uh, idea to uh, get us all to uh, commit early on. Since we then, uh, in the fall of 1996, so roughly a year later, hired Cindy's predecessor as essentially a full-time uh, pro bono uh, director. And then starting in 1997, uh, and ever since then, we've met the, met the challenge. And partly that was due to the adoption of a policy at the same time uh, Cindy's predecessor started, uh, you know, giving credit and formalizing the system. That's when the pro bono or public service committee was put in place. And uh, that's sort of the organizational structure. There's a committee within the firm that oversees Cindy, essentially, but Cindy does all the day-to-day the -day work. I think John talks really about the recent origins of the formal pro bono program, and maybe he can talk later when we talk about our awards. But I, my understanding is that also, besides the formal program, that the, one of the firm's founders, Leonard Lindquist, just brought uh, the, the concept and really the passion for public service from his really humble roots. Uh, and I think John can talk about that later when we talk about our award and sort of the deep meaning of that beyond the formal structure. It's really part of the firm's culture and its origins. So thank you for that, Cindy. You talked a little bit about your roles with John being the chair of the Public Service Committee and Cindy being the director of Pro Bono. Could you talk a little bit about your roles and responsibilities, how you divide up um, what you do, how you spend your time um, in service of the firm's pro bono program? Well, I'll, I'll start off. Uh, I mean, really, Cindy does all of the day-to-day -day work of the program, and I am just oversight uh, of the committee which oversees her. Uh, and we, I would say, act sort of as a board of directors of the pro bono program, providing direction uh, uh, and sort of some policy guidance and get involved in some of the big decisions. Uh, but the day-to-day -day is all handled uh, by Cindy. So I end uh, my role. Uh, you know, I know some firms have, uh, you know, sort of pro bono lawyers who also serve uh, an extensive amount of their time providing pro bono service. Uh, and I, like every other lawyer in the firm, does do pro bono, but it's not a you know overwhelming part of my practice. I'm a full-time lawyer, and this is just you know a committee that I serve on uh, for purposes of firm uh, administration. Uh, so uh, you know we we look at uh, you know what's coming in for pro bono. We have the committee has oversight over uh, approval of pro bono projects, but. Cindy approves probably 95% of those on her own and then only comes to me with maybe some questionable ones. Uh, and uh, then if we still have questions, then, you know, we sort of bump that to the committee. But I'd say that's sort of the overall uh, structure. Or to us, or maybe you check with us sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and I can talk a little bit about sort of what a job description really looks like. And I would add to John's description of my position that the firm's also dedicated uh, resources to provide a an assistant to the pro bono program. So it, it isn't just me, as John, I'd love to take credit for, but I do have help in the form of a, uh, an assistant who does a lot of work with scheduling and support and organizing around things that need to happen in, in my role. And so that's that's some extra resources that really makes things run smoothly. Um, but as John mentioned, I spend my days and time really implementing, I guess, what I, I kind of consider sort of a nonprofit within a for-profit. And so uh, the program internally is really structured a lot like a nonprofit in terms of having a budget and being accountable to that budget and deciding how to spend the money under that budget, both in terms of contributions outside the firm, but also in terms of what we do internally to support the work that goes on here. Um, you know, along the same lines, uh, we draft and create and make suggestions for policies about how to handle structure within the firm, uh, how do our procedures work to make sure that pro bono cases are aligned with certainly all the, you know, governance authority in the, in the rules of ethics and, um, and meet our clients' needs as effectively as any other kind of um, client that we serve here. So kind of running an organization within an organization. And then beyond those things, there's the, the daily work of making sure that when we take on a new pro bono project that our attorneys have the resources and the support and training that's necessary and that those things are accessible and made available really in simple format so that they don't waste time. Um, certainly in, in recruiting the right attorneys here and the right groups and the right uh, partnerships outside the firm to make sure that projects are successful and can be carried out effectively with, with the resources we have. And there's always the minutia of case placement, uh, things that are crossing your desk at any given moment, uh, and certainly troubleshooting when the phone rings and someone's found you on the Internet with a crisis and just tries to come in sort of a back door and, and get service and, and plead their case with someone who might listen. Um, and I would add also that a significant role in the position, and I think this is true of all of our pro bono leadership in Minnesota, and that is being really engaged outside the firm with the broader community and the the largest uh, version of the legal community really on kind of access to justice, uh, the delivery of services, the funding, uh, different committees uh, in terms of how volunteer network programs work, um, strategies, big picture involvement, sort of ranging from sort of the nuts and bolts of delivery um, out into the broader picture of really, um, you know, what our legislature is doing and what they know about uh, our clients in poverty and their access to the legal system and solutions to their problems. So it's really a broad range from, you know, quite small detailed minutia of dotting I's and crossing T's out to really the big picture vision in the state and country for that matter, or even globally, about what's going on with human rights work and, and how to provide access. Is there anything that you wish you could do if you had more time? Just never seems to climb your to-do list? Um, I think that's the $10 million question. There's always more things to do. And I, I really think one of the things that attracts people to this position, at least as they're structured, and this is inclusive of other firms in Minnesota, the way the programs are structured is really with a lot of um, liberty to, you know, dream up projects and really shoot for the moon. And so I can't think of any one particular thing, but, you know, given more time, I think just addressing the unmet need and, and the challenge of trying to look at systemic change and holistic projects and and um, 
um, approaches to dealing with systems uh, in addition to putting out sort of the everyday fires that go on. I think it would just be more of the same, really. And, and I appreciate the this firm and certainly the state and actually PBI's vision towards um, a more holistic approach to change. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, sometimes we get so caught up in the weeds <laughs> that we don't take the time to see the big picture. And, and we, we have to think big and, and think systemic. So one of the things you mentioned I wanted to drill down on a little bit, and that is your community. You live in a wonderful city in a wonderful state, and we're hoping you could describe the pro bono culture in Minneapolis writ large. Is Minnesota nice a real phenomenon? How, how would you describe your community? <laughs> Uh, I think it is. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, it's also uh, you know competitive in the sense that the, I think we have a very friendly but competitive pro bono environment. So, uh, in part, as I mentioned, how how we and the other firms in town originally you know got into this all at the same time together, uh, as far as the the pro bono challenge. Uh, and we've always enjoyed uh, trying to outdo each other, and uh, so. But it's a friendly competition. Uh, and for example, the uh, I I think of for the uh, you know what on national terms are are have been relatively smaller firms uh, based here in Minnesota. Uh, for, we were uh, for that size. I think the Minnesota firms were the first to go with non-lawyer directors. Uh, you know, sort of full-time directors of their pro bono programs, uh, and I think that was unusual. I think it's still somewhat unusual for firms, sort of the mid-size uh, firms, to devote those sorts of resources. Uh, and, but uh, ever since, uh, you know, we've had pro bono directors, they all regularly meet to discuss, uh, you know, what efforts can be done together. And again, I think those are sort of, there's a friendly uh, rivalry that goes along as part of that as we try to, to outdo each other in doing good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with John. I mean, I think, you know, the comments on Minnesota Nice can be sort of taken both ways. as either a real true sentiment or sort of a passive aggressive <laughs> yeah. Minnesota Nice. So I was going to ask you to clarify your meaning there. <laughs> um, but I, I think John's right about the friendly competition. But, uh, you know, underlying that, and this certainly is true when, when the pro bono directors here meet on a monthly basis, and that is that people share, you know, best practices. They share challenges. They share frustrations. They look towards collective solution and, and innovative approaches to things. They, they really want to know what the others are doing, not so that they can outdo them, but rather so that, that they can add value or uh, connect the dots better. And I think, you know, people beyond the legal sector are really looking to be connected. You know, we have great connections not only with our, our peers as a law firm and as pro bono directors uh, and, and public service committees, but I think beyond that, people are very well connected to board leadership in the nonprofit sector. They're connected to the social service work that goes on in support of the same clients we see in the legal system. They are connected very well to the funding community and, and therefore are able to convene at the table uh, the right players. And I think, you know, PBI certainly knows that and is experimenting with that very idea in the 
the um, the collaborative justice project right. here, and that that I think is is going to bear itself out really well when you bring the right players to the table. You can look at both those sort of elements of daily life and the minutia that it takes, but at the same time really look at systemic change so that we all do our jobs better and more effectively uh, without redundancy, and really look at making change happen for the better. So. Yeah, it, it's really a wonderful community model there that, that's to be emulated uh, around the country, around the world. So in, in preparing for our conversation today, and this may surprise many of our listeners, but we actually do prepare <laughs> and get ready <laughs> for our chats, um, you have a wonderful description of the Leonard E. Lindquist Pro Bono Award on your website, where you write, quote, we know the legal profession enjoys a unique role in the community and that we have the skills and ability to provide services for the disadvantaged and to promote the public interest in ways that no other profession can. So could you tell us a little bit about how you use firm awards to motivate and honor pro bono participation at the firm? Well, Leonard was one of the the founding uh, partners, and I would I would would say fathers. I mean, he really was looked up to, uh, great respect uh, within the firm and uh, you know within uh, Minnesota, and uh, he uh, he grew up in the depression. Uh, he uh, would uh, often talk about uh, during those days when his family did not have enough money when he was, I think it was like 13 years old, to feed him, that he uh, left home uh, during the Depression and rode the rails through northern Minnesota and out west uh, to try and find itinerant work to do. And he described uh, on several occasions what he, uh, probably politically incorrectly, I'm not sure what the term would be, but described hobos uh, by campfires, uh, literally, uh, you know, giving them the jackets off their backs and in uh, at least one instance, saving his life in a, in a brawl. And uh, he just said he always felt that, you know, given the, the great fortune that had uh, come to his life since then, that we all had a duty to to give back to the communities and that we are all a product of of our communities. And so that is a spirit which uh, we all heard of here, and usually at our holiday uh, uh, party he would uh, remind us of that obligation. And so that's the award is in his name, and uh, although he's been gone from us now, uh, it's probably 10 years, I think even those who are new to the firm since then uh, still realize that his, his spirit uh, you know, runs deep within uh, the firm, and not only the pro bono program, but uh, you know, through other uh, activities that uh, people engage in here. So, Rena, that award is given out at an annual event that we've hosted each year here to recognize one uh, outstanding pro bono attorney in particular or group of attorneys or paralegals, for that matter, that worked on something significant or dedicated significant time and resources. And that award is taken really seriously. The committee really deliberates over that. Uh, they look at hours. They look at involvement. They look at the depth. They look at the nurturing that went on in the case. And so there's a variety of award winners that are listed 
posted there on the website for different kinds of things, some of them higher profile, some of them more day-to-day, some of them in simple service are always their, their willingness to be available. So that's one of the recognitions that we do, and that's done at a large uh, firm luncheon and lots of stories told about the pro bono work, a lot of sort of glory and fame around that particular award, but also at that event, um, the other recognition that we do is for all attorneys and paralegals uh, whose goal is to achieve at 50 hours or more of pro bono in the year, and those folks are all recognized publicly at that event in addition to the one um, special award winner. Each of them is given a, a special thank you and letter card from management and the managing partner that recognizes their 50 hours, but also in conjunction with both that LEL main award and also with the award winners, a specific dollar amount is given to each um, of those recipients to donate to the nonprofit legal services provider that we, one of the ones that they choose that we we participate with. And that is uh, a shift uh, away from sort of giving people token items. We give an award, a physical award, but the, the newer generation is really interested in giving back and has told us in, in no small way that they would rather be giving 50 or $100 to a nonprofit than receiving a, sort of a, another coffee mug. Sure. And so we've made that change to try to be multi-generational in our approach to award giving. We do have an intranet internal to the office. We do a lot of posting of pro bono successes there and certainly externally on our website when that's appropriate with uh, regards to confidentiality. And then in the last year, um, really took seriously also more of this intergenerational approach and, and knowledge that, that younger folks really need more immediate reward and, and sort of motivation towards the work that they do. And so I've been using more spontaneous intermittent gifts, some small chocolates or you know little um, rewards, if you will, that people get on their desk as a surprise because they did something fantastic or stepped in at the last minute or helped someone else, you know, accomplish their goals. So we're really trying to be kind of cross-generational and yet preserve the historic nature of our other rewards. Those are tremendous ideas, and I love the marriage of not being so rigid and being able to be flexible and adaptive, but also love the origin story and honoring your roots and your culture. And I would imagine that just about every person who has passed through the firm knows that story <laughs> about <laughs> Leonard Linquist. I think you're right. And that that is now the glue that binds your people together. And I just, I love that. I think it speaks to a lot of values going on in the profession. So that's tremendous. Um, switching gears a little bit, could you tell us about a relatively new initiative of yours called the Austin Area Minority Business Project. And I'll say for listeners unfamiliar with the local Minnesota geography, this threw me for a loop because I couldn't understand why you had an Austin, Texas pro bono centered project. (laughs) But this is Austin, Minnesota. So (laughs) we've all learned something. Right. Austin, Minnesota is probably more famous for the Spam Museum (laughs) uh, because that is where the Hormel plant is located. And so uh, we are all very familiar with Austin, Minnesota, and the Austin Area Minority Business Project uh, grows out of a really unique partnership and really uh, long-term involvement with a number of organizations and and in many ways harkens back to my roots and ideas that percolate uh, over time and come to fruition into this project now. But Austin, is about an hour and a half from here, and I think the firm here has been talking about, as as nationally, uh, folks have been talking about how to really leverage legal 
access points and pro bono services that are so readily available, albeit always scarce, but readily available in metro areas and getting them to into greater Minnesota. And we've been having conversations about that. And so this ties in sort of with the um, goal of doing that. How can we get our services out of the metro and into other areas that need them? But also with the concept that small uh, communities outside of metro areas, and I hesitate to call them rural because they're not necessarily entirely rural. They're developing communities in their own ways. Um, but but how, you know, how do we grow those communities as they change? And I think this is true across the country that um, small communities are either dying or they're being changed by immigrant populations as they have throughout our time in history in the United States by newer immigrant communities. And so because of my background with both migrant farm workers in greater Minnesota and, and new and arriving immigrants have had the opportunity to see uh, small communities around the states where um, both business development and the absorption of new immigrant communities is done really effectively and places where it is done really poorly. And the difference of the outcomes and the racism and hostility and actually the success of business communities really depend on how things are implemented when new arrivals come to communities. So this collaborative comes from sort of the anecdotal uh, evidence that, you know, when communities get together and they plan for and support the needs of new immigrant communities, our uh, small towns across the country really can thrive uh, and do better and create new industries and jobs for that matter and, and an economic infrastructure that is dying in many small communities. So this project comes together with uh, the pro bono services of Lindquist and Venom, um, an organization uh, that I referenced earlier called the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota that does immigration-related law, and a nonprofit, non-legal entity called the Latino Economic Development Center that fosters uh, economic opportunities, uh, loans, training, uh, and development for Latino business owners, and also a research organization that we added to the equation so that they could be following in a long-term study the outcomes of our project in the Austin area so that we can actually prove to the world that by doing things strategically and doing things with the appropriate levels of support, that the deep community outcomes uh, show positive growth. So we're not just tracking um, how many new businesses open, although that'll certainly be a factor, but we're looking longer and deeper, and we're looking at community engagement in the schools. We're looking at success of first and second generation immigrants as their parents integrate into communities. Are the grades better? Do parents participate in uh, school conferences? Um, are we raising the voting population? Um, are we engaging people in city meetings or in city council? Are people, you know, getting engaged in their local political systems and other measurements? So we're really excited about launching this project. Um, as you know, and anyone listening will know, is we can offer pro bono services, but our nonprofit partners need funding in order to, um, you know, grow programming. And so we were really excited when the Bank of America settlement money went out for community development and proposed this project, which was able to 
then to fund three of our partner organizations to do the work with us. So we will be the pro bono provider of services, not all, but some services coming out of this project. And so we will be on standby for case referrals in a couple of areas of immigration law as it relates to probably naturalization, um, perhaps DACA and uh, renewal or DACA original application, applications. Uh, and then uh, also excitingly for our corporate attorneys through the Latino Economic Development Center, we're really anticipating a plethora of legal advice requests around the area of business formation, of um, business partnerships, perhaps real estate issues in the form of contracts for deeds or um, reviewing contract agreements, um, and then also in the area of employment law. So we have attorneys ready to stand by. We have some room for growth into the corporate sector involvement for pro bono if uh, you know the, the needs and demands outweigh what we can provide at Lindquist. And so we're really, really excited about launching this um, and, and have not yet really had enough work coming through the project to be able to gauge these outcomes, but are looking forward to hopefully continuing this into the next few years and seeing it replicated as a model both in Minnesota and outside the state if we can sort of put together the manual on, on best practices around this. Well, that'll be fascinating, and we'll have to have you back so you can uh, report <laughs> and let us know how it's going. I wanted to just let people know who weren't familiar with the acronym DACA. So that's Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. So this was sort of a, an immigration-related term that you can uh, look up if you want to learn more and are unfamiliar with it. Um, I want to pivot, Cindy, and ask you about another one of your Hallmark initiatives. It's called Breaking Poverty Barriers to Equal Justice. And this was a really pioneering first-of-its-kind endeavor. And I was hoping you could tell us what it is, when and how you created it, and its, its current status and how it's evolved. I love to talk about breaking <laughs> poverty barriers, <laughs> both as a project and as a concept. And I am so excited about this project and to see it really still living on after uh, many years of work. And the idea was is that it would live on and continue to be um, uh, a tool for others to use around the country. So rolling back the clock, this project predates my arrival here as a concept. And I began working with uh, one of my colleagues at Volunteer Lawyers Network when I wore the hat of pro bono director on the nonprofit side, and we could see that lots and lots of resources go into the provision of pro bono services, but we could also see that sometimes those relationships fail. Uh, a lot of resources go into preparing a case for uh, transfer to pro bono, for interviewing clients, for setting up and teeing up training and pro bono activities on, on the, from the nonprofit sector to the private sector, but that sometimes once cases got placed, there was uh, an opportunity for those cases to fall through the cracks or fail. And oftentimes what we would learn in looping back with our clients and our pro bonos that there was very much a disconnect um, because of communication barriers or misunderstandings. And what we realized is that even though there were cultural differences that we hear a lot about in current diversity activities, so we're looking at language, we're looking at interpreters, we're looking at race, what we weren't looking at is the simple factor that there's socioeconomic differences between communication. And so uh, one of the ideas was is that we could try to improve that by learning more about those different socioeconomic cultures um, by both 
you know, helping our attorneys our, in the private sector understand what it was like coming from poverty and what some of the traits of people in poverty um, have in terms of communication and lifestyle, and vice versa, that we could help teach clients how to better and more effectively work with their pro bono attorneys and therefore better leverage resources. One of the other concerns really in the beginning was is that we were perhaps perpetuating stereotypes about both communities to the other. So this project was uh, launched after I came to Linquist when I approached the firm and sort of pitched this as a project and had some support from the judiciary and other people outside the firm who sort of thought that they understood the concept. And when I pitched it at the firm, I was pitching it as something that perhaps they might want to fund partially or leverage some funding from uh, someone else to participate with. And much to my surprise and delight, they said, well, let's just do it. It sounds really great. And so the firm, through a number of different committees and its foundation, really supported this project wholesale. So what we did was bring in a nationally known trainer whose name is Donna Beagle from Communication Across Barriers in Portland. And we hosted a pro bono week 2014 live event, and she did her magic uh, on teaching and training a large segment of the private and public legal sector about clients in poverty, their communication styles, their perspectives on the world from different types of poverty, really breaking it down into sort of a, a sociology class, really, um, and, and teaching about um, perspective. And so we taped that training and edited that uh, live material into videotaped segments that we've posted now publicly and has been transformed to a, a large extent over the years and just recently was launched in a YouTube format that's available nationwide for anyone to use that runs a pro bono program either from the private sector in the pro bono sense or from the public sector and wants to train their staff or employees. Um, and we have had interest in this program, I kid you not, from across the country, Alaska to Hawaii, uh, when we were taking registrations for it, from across the legal sector as well. The judiciary is very interested in training the bench on the kinds of issues that people in poverty face and their different communication styles, um, to the law schools who have run the curriculum. Um, you know, court staff is interested in it, really, the access to justice movements. Um, uh, since we put it out in the formats online, we also had um, United Health Group here in Minnesota interested in changing that format and, and asked us if we would be willing, in conjunction with VLN, to consider changing it into a WebEx format. And so they did that with their employees uh, for the first time last summer, wildly well received. Uh, they told us that we had raised the bar on content for their live web or their WebEx uh, format. Very interactive in that in that way, and very innovative use. And then are now doing that again with the help of United Health Group Volunteer Lawyers Network, uh, also the ABA Center for Pro Bono, and the National Association for Pro Bono Professionals are supporting another round of WebEx formats here coming up in October, and I'm certainly happy to get you that information. Um, and then for anyone interested, they can always access different formats and segments of the project on our website at linquist.com. So we're really excited that it's still alive and out there and being used. Uh, we've now got it laid out, I think, in five different formats for, for users to choose which version they would like to use for their training. Very exciting. Yeah. So for people who want to learn more, 
go to the Linguist website. There's a lot of information there. You can go to our website. We've got some good information on our blog about this project. I think Cindy was great and did a Q&A with us. You can also really easily type into any search engine, breaking poverty barriers to equal justice, and boom, all the great links and information will come up and you can learn more. So it's a terrific project, a terrific effort, and I think it's really of the moment. I think there's a great awareness that this is something that we and the community um, really need and, and really could use. Could each of you share one or more, if you want, meaningful pro bono stories, a success or a project or a case that was meaningful to you, either that you worked on personally or that the firm worked on that just sort of has resonated with you? Oh, that's such a big question, Rena. John, do you have anything that jumps to mind over your years that really stands out? You know, one thing about our uh, pro bono program here in general is that it uh, tends to be uh, a lot of individual stories as opposed to sort of major headline-type stories. Uh, so these, these aren't – our successes are not ones you'd read about in the paper. Um, I would say for me, it's uh, I uh, routinely uh, serve over at uh, our housing court and uh, through uh, the Volunteer Lawyers Network, uh, many of the firms in town staff that. So when, for example, when people get eviction notices, they also, we have coordinated uh, with the courts that the notice goes out with the eviction uh, notice. Uh, uh, tell, or the summons and complaint to get them evicted, telling them that there is this help available at the courthouse on the day of their hearing or any other day they want to come in. And so uh, I help staff that. And so, you, you know, on an after Friday afternoons usually, and, you know, I never know what's going to be coming in the door, uh, whether it's someone who wants an expungement of uh, a prior uh, eviction proceeding uh, so that they can uh, rent more easily, or whether it's someone who in 10 minutes is going to be in the courtroom uh, for having failed to pay rent and uh, needs advice as to uh, what they uh, uh, what they might, what defenses they might have. I can think of, uh, well, one that comes to mind was uh, probably three months ago, a uh, family came in, uh, they were being evicted, and they felt it had been because they had complained about bed bugs in their apartment and, and what they could do about that. And so it was advising them uh, not only what the defenses would be, but what affirmative claims uh, they did have uh, as a result of their uh, possessions being inhabited by bedbooks, which, as it turned out, had come from you know the neighboring apartment. Uh, so uh, that was certainly one where I felt I uh, greatly contributed to to their uh, to their well-being because uh, they were very concerned about being thrown out on the street. Plus really without any of their belongings because they were all uh, you know, infested with bed bugs. Yeah, I think Rena John is really right. I mean, one of the hallmarks here has been that I think this firm in particular, and this is something that really attracts me to it uh, and keeps me engaged, is really been focused on the fact that everyday people are just as important as big case headlines. And so the firm's programs have stayed really dedicated to 
are the things we see on the street, <laughs> the things that people on a daily basis really need, and the things that the legal services community tells us are important to their legal community. And that's not to say that we, we love taking big litigation. We're happy to work on, you know, appeals cases, and we'll take a case all the way up the chain if we need to. But our daily work is really about serving clients in need. And so, you know, I it's easier for me to talk about projects uh, or communities and groups that have benefited from our services than it is to really single out any specific case. But three uh, three things really come to mind that I think are, are examples of the programming and that really um, kind of, you know, bring tears to my eyes when I think about them. And one, one of those in, the, in a big way is the patent project that I think PBI and others across the country have heard about over the years. And I, and I say that the importance around that is just so exciting to me because it has had national impact and it's allowed others to leverage work that we've done here. Uh, and I think that's really incredibly exciting. Um, you know, the other thing I think that has been um, exciting for me to see is, and, and I say this because it's exciting to see the impact that real stories have on pro bono attorneys, and that's been around our work in the area of expungement. Um, I think this is an incredibly misunderstood area of the, not so much the law, but of the communities that are in need of criminal expungement. And that is to say that I think we approach this work in particular, thinking that people who need expungements are bad people. They're, they're criminals. They have committed crimes, and they're sort of the underbelly of, of the community that we might want to work with. They're not going to get us headline stories, and they, they sort of sort of aligns itself with criminal defense. But when you bring people to this work who can actually sit down with someone in need of an expungement, it is cathartic to see what happens to especially a young attorney. And we've used expungement as one of our summer associate programs for a few years. Um, but to change that perspective, uh, and a project that you can also look up online called We Are All Criminals uh, that has an interesting perspective on this, whatever the idea I'm getting at. And that is that one story that really stands out to me is one of our summer associates who came to me after being signed up uh, or paired up with an expungement, a criminal expungement client. And she came to my office afterward and she said, oh, my God, you know, a 46-year-old engineer was just crying in my office. And he was crying because he had a criminal expungement need, and all he wanted to do was pay his child support. And she just had really had a moment that moved her needle on this issue way uh, into a different range. And so that, that was really exciting to me. And the other thing I would say about casework that really triggers something for me every single day, and this is testament, I think, not just to Linquist, but the Minnesota community, and that's been the ability to be really nimble in our responses. Um, the issues of human trafficking and now uh, over the last few years, the child arrivals from Central America have been um, whole segments of populations that we've been able to very quickly and adeptly make uh, partnerships and um, training materials and pro bono projects out of and really be able to have an impact on on the changing needs. And so those have, you know, clearly each one of those cases, um, working with victims in, in both of those arenas has been just really um, something, you know, to, to feel proud of. Well, thank you both for sharing. So let's end with this. Other than Leonard Lindquist, Who's your pro bono or access to justice role model? 
Well, I'm going to give John a second to think about that because I know I know that one of his uh, deepest mentors really is Leonard Lindquist, <laughs> and maybe he can think of someone else in addition. But I don't mean to be promoting of, of PDI, but I'm certainly happy to give you the credit for it. But my first exposure to Judge Lippman was at a PDI conference a couple of years ago, and I can still hear that man's voice resonating in my head um, and still motivates me. And in fact, I asked PBI for the tape of the session that he spoke at to use really one phrase that that still resonates with me and that was I'll never do it justice of course but you know something along the lines of if we cannot provide equal access to justice we might as well close the courtroom doors uh, and we we took that at one of our annual pro bono awards um, and we opened the session with that comment and I think everybody just you know those simple few words and his passion for um, equal access really just still resonates resonates with me. And so I'm really, I would say Jonathan Littman. That's great. So this is Jonathan Littman. He is the immediate past chief justice of the New York Court of Appeal, the highest court in, in New York. His, his term has ended, but yeah, he is still a true champion for justice. That is for sure. And, and I'm going to give you two since you took away my one. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Uh, and uh, so one would be Cindy's predecessor, Candy Goodman, yeah, uh, yeah. who uh, was the first executive director of Volunteer Lawyers Network. Uh, and for those not in Minnesota, that's the organization uh, here in Minneapolis that matches up uh, pro bono uh, um, People with the need for pro bono services and lawyers, and it was—I think there's a debate as to whether we're the first, second, or third uh, uh, organization set up in the country really to do that. And then, uh, as I said, came here to to Linquist, uh, shortly after that, and uh, really just uh, is uh, everyone in town. And I suspect uh, from years of being at PBI, people uh, who were involved over the years certainly know of Candy, who is just uh, incredible energy uh, and heart uh, in uh, providing pro bono. And the the second person I would mention is uh, Tom Tinkham over at the, the Dorsey firm in Minneapolis, who uh, is, I believe, now more or less fully retired from the practice, uh, but has taken on uh, just gathering a group of people together who he knows provide uh, some part of the pro bono uh, experience and just gets us in a room once a, once a month and challenges us to figure out ways to increase uh, pro bono uh, representation uh, with a focus on Hennepin County, the, the county for Minneapolis. And it really has been is just a, a, a force of his personality to get people there and to say this month we're going to focus on getting more uh, representation in housing court, for example, which I mentioned, or more representation in the family law area, or more representation with respect to guardians uh, and guardian ad litem. And just, uh, again, on a total voluntary basis, he could be uh, certainly sitting on his laurels somewhere, and yet uh, not only organizing it, but then routinely taking on uh, cases himself. So I think that's a, a model uh, that I think, I, and that I hope, and uh, you know, I know this has been a subject at PBI and elsewhere of uh, as lawyers transition out of the practice to not, uh, you know, 
transition out of providing legal services to those who need it. Yes, we call that Project Second Act. So thank you for the commercial. That was a, a great plug. And those were three wonderful and inspiring choices. Thank you for sharing them with us. And John and Cindy, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was great, Rena. Thank you. An enthusiastic thank you to Cindy and John for joining us today. To learn more about us and our work, visit our website at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. 